0: Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Ida B. Wells was born in Mississippi in the middle of the Civil War, grew up in the heady days of Reconstruction, and then with Reconstruction's end, was fed the bitter pill of Jim Crow. But she didn't swallow it. Instead, in courageous newspaper articles and in public appearances in the... I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Ida B. Wells was born in Mississippi in the middle of the Civil War, grew up in the heady days of Reconstruction, and then with Reconstruction's end was fed the bitter pill of Jim Crow, but she didn't swallow it. Instead, in courageous newspaper articles and in public appearances in the United States and in Great Britain, she took on the subject of lynching, and she became probably the best known African-American woman of her day. Today we're going to talk to Mia Bay, author of the biography, To Tell the Truth Freely, The Life of Ida B. Wells, which came out with Helen Wang in 2009. A historian at Rutgers, Bay tells of Wells' personal life from taking charge of her younger siblings upon her parents' sudden death when she was only 16, to her companionate marriage to Chicago lawyer, Ferdinand Barnett. And she tells us of Wells's career as an activist at a time of tremendous danger and violence for African Americans. This is a remarkable story, and we're glad to have Mia Bay on our show today. Hi, Mia. Hi. Hi there! I'm glad to have you on the line. Here, we have today Mia Bay from Rutgers University, uh, and we're going to talk to her about her wonderful book, "To Tell the Truth Freely: The Life of Ida B. Wells." Mia, I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you. We usually start out our podcasts by asking our authors just to talk a little bit about themselves, your your personal background. What brought you into this line of work? What got you interested in this sort of material?
1: Okay, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I was born in California originally and grew up a lot of places, but mostly Canada and to some extent Europe. So in some ways, I became curious about the United States because we were sort of expatriate Americans. And that was one reason I started to study American history. Um, and then um, I became increasingly interested in African American history, which I studied during college. Um, and is part of my family background. So I eventually returned to the United States and did a Ph.D. at Yale University and became someone who specializes in the history of ideas about race and African-American history.
0: Great, right, Yeah. And you have a previous book, right? Right. About the white image in the black mind. Yes. Um, which is a, a compelling title, right? Yes. Yes. Tell, tell us a little bit about that before we start on the present book. Um, the white image. In the Black Mind
1: is a book about African-American ideas about white people. One of the things I found when I started studying history in college and graduate school was that there were all these books about ideas about race, but they were always about what white people thought about black people. So I got the idea of kind of reversing the focus and trying to find out what black people thought about white people, especially in the 19th century when um basically on both sides of the color line there was some idea that there were fundamental differences between blacks and whites and what I found out when I researched the book is that black people had ideas about these fundamental differences but they were quite different than whites Um, and um, so they had their own kind of racial ideology to some extent though um, also to some extent especially among Uneducated blacks, there was a real belief in the equality of all men, and the idea that you know it's really a matter of your spirit and soul. Ideas drawn from the Bible.
0: Mm, interesting, yeah, yeah. And what's so interesting is the transition, in a sense, from that book to 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 the present book, where of course we really try to get into the mind of one very very important African American activist, Ida B. Wells. Yes. Um, you know, and, and this is a name that many of us know. Um, you know, usually followed by the 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 name anti-lynching crusader. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Ida B. Wells anti-lynching crusader. Um and what we have here is a biography that's so nicely situated um in the course of her life. She's born during the Civil War and her mm-hmm. childhood is very much shaped by Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um and and the course of her life just really um you know runs through this this horrifying period of the tightening of Jim Crow mm-hmm. and just 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 mind boggling violence so I, I wonder if you can get us get us started with situating her um in her in her family of origin okay
1: yes um one of the reasons Ida B Wells is such an exciting subject to study and learn about is is because because she's born during the Civil War um literally as um she was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which kept being conquered by the Confederates and then conquered, taken back by the Union. Um, and then she, when she grew up, she grew up doing Reconstruction, watching her father and other black men in that little town um, organize, organize politically, vote, um, and eventually lose the power to do so. Um, so she is born in an era that... Um, we associate with a lot of racial violence and, in the end, with um, sort of democracy won and lost. But it, the interesting thing I learned from looking at her is that, many, in many ways, the possibilities that were available during her childhood, the sort of moment after the Civil War when it seemed like the United States might become a racial democracy, um, or something she kind of clung to for the rest of her life, um, and would form her ideas as an adult. She was always um, she was more than an anti-lynching crusaders. Crusader. She saw lynching as sort of a symptom of white supremacy, as a way in which um, whites maintained almost complete power over blacks. Um, so her anti-lynching crusade was really about recapturing political rights for blacks and working towards some sort of racial equality.
0: Right. And, you know, you write a lot about her parents who, you know, weren't members of the elite, but they also weren't dirt poor. Right. But they're sort of in that, you know, they, he, You know, her father was a, a, a carpenter, a, a skilled craftsman. Um, and they... They communicated to her their hopes for Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And you really get a sense of of what it must have felt like to experience your adolescence during this period of of, of real hope. Yes. um, That, wow, we might be, you know, this might be, this might be it. This might be the big turnaround. Mm
1: -hmm. Her parents seem to have been, you know, self-confident, very capable people. Both of them were born into slavery, um, but both of them had. Some skilled jobs during slavery. Uh, her father was a carpenter, her mother was a seamstress, um, and they seem to have been completely confident that if they worked hard enough, um, they could get ahead, they could get their children ahead, and they were very active in doing so. Um, Ida B. Ida B. Wells went to grade school in a missionary school. She was the first of eight children. And her mother went to school with her because her mother didn't know how to read and write either. And she stayed in school with Ida B. Wells and uh, some of the other children until she learned how to read the Bible. And then she was and then she was done. But you see what kind of determination um, that this mother has that she goes to school with her goes to school with the children and learns how to read. Um and then proceeds to put all the children into school um even though they are, they have relatively modest means they they have they keep all the children in school um up until up until Ida's teens when her parents die tragically in a yellow fever epidemic that sweeps through the Mississippi valley, so she has a childhood with these sort of strong competent parents she says that they're you know that they do fine because they're able it's her belief as a kid that she just that you know they they're talented they're going to do fine um and it seems like it was their belief but then tragedy hits they die in this epidemic um and which um which takes place in 1870 through 1870 i'm trying to remember 18 excuse me um
0: well it's quite close to <laughs> reconstruction, right? You have it, one year exactly. one year reconstruction ends, right. eighteen seventy seven, and the next year so, her parents die, like right? The
1: world is kind of turns yeah, around. Yeah. Her parents die and she starts to see ominous things happening politically. Um and she struggles to raise her brothers and sisters. So she has we should, quite. We
0: say here that she, she's only fifteen or sixteen she's when 16 her son right. died. they die, she's got these seven younger siblings.
1: Yeah, and she, her parents' friends. Her father was a Freemason, so the Masons kind of rally around and say that they'll split up the children and take care of them. And Ida B. Wells is only sixteen, but she just thinks it's unthinkable. She thinks her parents wouldn't want the children to be split up. Um, that, you know, the family is sort of all they have at this point. So she says, no, she's going to take care of them. And she drops out of school. Um, as she puts it, she lengthens her skirts and she right. becomes a school teacher teaching grade school in the in rural schools. At, at that time, you needed very minimal qualifications to speak, to teach um, um Black children in these rural schools, so she could do it with what was essentially barely a high school education.
0: So here she is, you know, in her later teens, she's, you know, raising several kids. She's riding her mule to school, yes, um, to do her teaching. Um, and um, and then shortly after that, she moves the family to Memphis, um, where, and I have to say, just just your portrait of her in Memphis was was just amazing, right? (laughs) You know, she's, she's, you know, 20 years old. She's taking care of these kids. She's a teacher. She's. Starting, in a sense, her activist career, mm-hmm. she's suing train companies mm-hmm. because they won't see her in first class, although she bought her first class tickets, and she's got this whirlwind of a social life, and, you know, she's all 20 years old, um, but but t- tell us a little bit about Memphis. What did that move to the city mean for her?
1: Okay, well, she uh, the move to the city meant a lot to her, because her years of teaching in the rural school, I think she learned a lot about people. I mean, she got to know these sort of very poor rural people, very uneducated rural people, but she was miserable. She had, she, she, these schools were, the school was not in Holly Springs. So she had to ride her mule out there. Um, She was paid poorly um, often time and really only could could survive because the country people would supplement it by giving her food and stuff that she could take back. Um, But Memphis meant, Better opportunities than these, um, and an ability not not to not to com- not to commute by mule. Um, right. So, yeah. <laughs> so she was thrilled to move there. She also had, um, I think, she felt she had better opportunities for her brothers and sisters, and she was able. And she moved there in hopes of getting ultimately getting a job in the Memphis school system, which paid better. Um, But initially she moves to Memphis and she doesn't have a job in the Memphis school system. So she continues to commute this time by train because they've recently, um, recently started using passenger trains in a, in a big way um, (laughs) in the early 1880s. So she's able to commute by train and that's how she gets into her trouble with the train company, because even as they, begin to make trains more widely available in the South. They also begin to make distinctions between blacks and whites on trains. These distinctions do not occur immediately at the end of the Civil War, even at the end of Reconstruction. Traditionally, the distinction used on the train was that there were special cars set aside for ladies because... um, Ironic, well, because men smoked like chimneys in the 19th century. Right. They also right. tobacco. And the railroads found early on in the introduction of passenger travel that women were just like, we're not going to ride in those filthy, disgusting, smoke filled <laughs> compartments. So they introduced ladies' cars. So that's where Ida would naturally choose to ride on her way back and forth to work. And initially, she was allowed to do so. But as in the wake of Reconstruction, as Tennessee and other states uh, grew more and more vigilant about separating the races, one day she sat down in the ladies' car, and she was kicked out. And she was furious, so that started her lawsuit.
0: So, so she's, you know, again, quite young and she, Mm -hmm. she takes on the train companies and it is this sort of interesting moment in reconstruction. Like Mm -hmm. you say, this is, or or, excuse me, in post reconstruction Mm -hmm. where, you know, the trains themselves are kind of changing the rules and municipalities Mm -hmm. are kind of changing their rules. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is eventually going to take us to Plessy versus Pergus, per, uh, Ferguson. Yeah. But it's it's a process. It's a process. Um, and she's kind of caught in the middle of that transition, right?
1: Yeah, and, I mean, black women were especially caught in this process um, because this previous system of ladies' cars um, really made it about gender. So, um, and and, you know, implicitly, they implicitly and sometimes explicitly, they were first class cars. But by normal practice, you know, it was where any woman who was even semi-respectable could ride. Um, it hadn't been an issue prior to the end of slavery or e- and even in some ways during Reconstruction of there being all that many kind of middle class black women who wanted to ride in a ladies' car or who traveled by train at all, but when it started when that started to happen, this was happening to other black women as well and there were a lot of these lawsuits and um a lot of them won because even even in the logic of the law you know a woman is a woman is a woman <laughs> um, and uh, that's why they eventually one of the reasons they eventually have to switch to white and colored because it just doesn't make any sense to have a ladies' car in which no black woman can can. Um, ride. And Ida B. Wells initially wins in the lower court just on that basis. The judge says she's a perfectly respectable lady with a job as a school teacher who obviously does not want to ride in a car where, where men are smoking and playing cards and swearing.
0: But then she loses on appeals. She loses right? on appeals yeah.
1: because yeah. Um, at the Supreme Court level, um Tennessee is actually committed to um, segregation um, and will will move towards a system of colored cars and white cars. Um, That's not actually technically why she loses in court. What they actually do in court is paint her as someone who is not a lady. Um, They find a white woman who testifies that she rode next to Ida B. Wells at some point and didn't like her and (laughs) thought she was you know thought she was impertinent it's very trumped up but she loses and they also argue that the ladies cars and the smoking cars as the other cars were actually called were just the same and that the even though the smoking cars were called smoking cars nobody smoked in them
0: right which of course they did (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's why they're called smoking cars (laughs) yeah 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 But anyway, what's, you know, it's, it's an interesting episode because we see her, you know, again, as a pretty, as, a, as quite a young person, mm-hmm. you know, she, she gets mad on the train and she marches herself to, to a lawyer, whoever it is she has to march to, to sue. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's also in this period of young adulthood that she, she starts writing. Mm-hmm. Um, she writes some fiction, um, but she also starts her career as a journalist.
1: Yeah. In fact, her first article is about this episode on the train because, I mean, she's, she's a, she's a person with a sort of broad political worldview, even at this young age, she views her court case against the railroad as something that is for the race that other people should know about, other people should support, Mm -hmm. other people should be involved in. Um, She's still pretty poor. So she would also like other people to like help help her out. (laughs) Um, So she starts writing about this. um, And she just continues writing about other things. She has... She has very ambitious dreams. I guess her parents encourage her to have ambitious dreams. So she, and she's a voracious reader. So she kind of dreams of being a novelist and talks about being, um, you know, a fiction writer. But once she starts to write about, um, you know, things, things in her daily life and politics, uh, she just really takes to it. And she continues to do so. She's, you know, she's working. She's, teaching. She eventually gets a job in Memphis. Um, but she's doing a lot of writing while she is, um, you know, while she's doing that. She has a lot of energy and a lot of commitments. And she's um, writing at a time when um, there were there were opportunities for an ambitious young woman such as her. There weren't a lot of black women journalists, um, but there was no, there was not, this, there was not really a, a sort of barrier against them and once her articles start to appear her first ones appear in the local church newspaper but they get picked up and um she has with there's a diary that she wrote during that period that still survives and you see her getting excited the first time she's offered you know a dollar for one of her articles but mm-hmm. to be published in some other newspaper she starts being a correspondent for some other black newspapers sometimes for free sometimes for pay so she begins to see a career in it and wells was never very happy being a teacher i think i mean and for a number of reasons i think part of it was that she started too young she felt She felt overwhelmed um, during her early years teaching in those rural schools. She felt that not just the children, but their parents needed education and help and guidance. And she was only a teenager, so she just felt Mm. manifestly ill-qualified to do it. Um, And she never quite got over her sense that teaching was not for her. She also did not have a good enough education to teach at the higher grades where she might have been She might have enjoyed herself more. She, at one point, uh, seems to have tried to get some more education so she could do that, but she never managed. So writing for her was um, a way out of teaching as well as something she really loved to do.
0: And you also get a sense here that, you know, with this writing, that that place mattered a lot. I mean, she had this episode where an aunt convinced her to move out to California for a while, and she was unhappy there for a number of reasons. It was a little town. It was dusty, you know. Um, But you also get the sense that she, that there was more going on. There were things for her to do in Memphis, not just socially, but she by that time already had a political charge. Right. Um, and there was there was there was work to be done in Memphis and she didn't quite know what to do with herself. Um, I was interested in that episode because it, it was this sort of inter, you know, sort of entanglement of her struggle to to want to keep her family together. But at the same time, to realize there's there's, there's work she needed to do. Um, and there's you know, maybe a little bit of a tension between those two things. Yeah. I and mean, she faced
1: challenges as an ambitious young woman. Memphis was actually a very exciting place during this. Post Reconstruction period and even during Reconstruction, a lot of ambitious uh, young Black people were moving to cities, and they were creating uh, these na- Black neighborhoods. These the the um, within segregation, for all its downsides, you had Black businesses, springing up um, communities, churches. Um, so she felt like you know she felt like she was. In this, in, an, in a sort of new way that you couldn't have had during slavery. So she felt like she was part of this moment where all sorts of things were happening. Um, she also was seeing negative things happening that she wanted to fight about. In California, she sort of entered a, a world that she knew n- very little about um, and where little is going on. And then also, as is typical for a woman in the 1880s, she had to think about getting married. That's what women did. Um, she was also, she was very pretty and an incredible flirt. Um, so she had all these, these suitors that she was kind of weighing between. Um, that was also not a great scenario in California, in this little dusty desert town. So Memphis held the possibility of, you know, finding a husband, of doing interesting things with her life. Um, 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 And I mean, ultimately, when she returns to Memphis, she will actually start her own newspaper, which was something she couldn't have done in California. It was just too isolated from the kind of vibrant black community of the post-Reconstruction South that she had grown up in.
0: Yeah, yeah. So she comes back to Memphis. The suitors kind of disappear. Um, <laughs> but she buys part ownership in in the Mem- you know, in, in the Memphis Free Speech, and you know, now you know, she she's made her decision, right? She's she's there, she's she's making a kind of a commitment to journalism. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, and it, it, again these you know she's taking control of it in a way. She wasn't getting paid very much for, as a freeway, <laughs> you know, selling off her articles, so she right. may as well own the paper, right? Exactly. <laughs> um um you know, it might be useful, um to talk a little bit just about the black press, okay. um, you know, just, just to, to help us to contextualize mm-hmm. what it meant to be working in that world. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the black press, um, has roots that are, you go back to even the, you know, even the pre-Civil War era, back to the 1820s, but black newspapers proliferate after, after the Civil War, um, and in places, you know, in the South where there previously hadn't been any, um, at that point, if you, you know, running a newspaper was about getting a printing press, um, soliciting subscriptions, soliciting advertising, selling copies. Um, and you know, they were a number of them. Um, they were often, people often partnered up to do them. The printing press might print other things. Um, they often, reprinted articles from other newspapers. So it was, and it didn't necessarily come out every day. So it was possible to put together a newspaper. And if you were ambitious and the newspaper became uh, successful, you could make some money. African-Americans during that era were very anxious for news. Um, It was the first time that the community had really been able to follow what was going on. And they had obviously a lot of, Political questions of the day that were very important to them. So newspapers circulated widely. Even people who couldn't read wanted to hear what was in the newspaper. So people would buy copies and read them to other people. So Ida B. Wells was very aware of all this, and and to make it make a go of it as a newspaper owner, um, she not only basically wrote most of the content. She was um, she was a co-owner of it with some partners. But she traveled around the South um, with a press pass on the railroads. And sold copies, Um, and she, and she really, she was very creative uh, about making a success of it. She realized that at one point that some of the um, some unscrupulous news vendors were um, selling, selling, pretending to sell copies of her paper to blacks who were illiterate, um, but they'd actually be giving them some other paper, like the police gazette, which was. A white white paper um so she started printing her paper on on pink paper, so nobody could pass it off as some other newspaper
0: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's you know it's it's um it's an interesting kind of world, right. In kind of, you know, medium sized cities Mm -hmm. and obviously with reaching out though, also, you know, going out and selling in smaller towns, selling in rural areas Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about, you know, who your market is and the, Mm -hmm. the, the incredible hunger for news. Right. Right. But, but again, at this kind of moment of lots of entrepreneurship, right. 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 Because this, this is kind of a new world in a way too, right. People are creating new papers. Yeah. 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 And
1: you can kind of, you know, you can, you can, do these things, that they're they're done at a scale that you you can do them, and you have the sort of pent up ambitions of of a community, as, and as well pent up talent of a community, and, and and sort of amazing people doing amazing things. And she she's very much part of that, and she she really she she writes when she first starts writing, she writes under the pen name Iola, which she takes because she says she wants to speak as a sort of Country-born Southern girl, and that's that's her sort of identity, and that's sort of how she pictures herself leading her life, sort of um, as this as this um, Southern girl. But her newspaper will eventually get herself into trouble because. The other side of black newspapering in the South was that the black papers were the ones that were commenting on what was going on. They were commenting on the rising level of white supremacy, rising levels of racial violence, um, and saying negative things about that that, and um, that could get black editors into trouble. As Ida B. Wells well knew, she knew stories about people who had been, you know, driven out of town for saying something considered impolitic. Um, she, um, I, as, as, as a newspaper editor, or actually even as a teacher, and that's what ultimately would happen to her. She, there was a lynching in Memphis. In in 1892, that involved um, one of her closest friends, um, a man named Thomas Moss, who, along with his wife Betty, was very close friends with Ida B. Wells, um, was one of three men that were lynched one day in Memphis. And the three men who were lynched uh, were not criminals or low as people who lynched people who were lynched were typically portrayed as. They were three businessmen who had started a cooperative black grocery store called the people's grocery store that was in competition with a white owned grocery store across the street in Memphis's black neighborhood, which was called the curve. And, um, the lynching was basically, um, really fomented by the white grocery store owner. It started with a conflict over boys who were playing marbles and, um, a black boy beat up a white boy, but then it escalated from there with this man, the grocery store owner, really leading the charge. Um, and it ended up with these three men who owned the grocery store, who had had very little to do with the original conflict, being pulled out of jail, taken to an empty field, and shot one night. Um, and um, this whole experience came as a sh- tremendous shock to Ida B. Wells. Um, she was actually out of town when it happened, selling, traveling around on the railroad, selling her newspaper. And she came back to find her friend Thomas Met Moss and his business partners dead. Um, black Memphis being terrorized by whites. Um, and it was kind of like this moment where she realized that all this promise that she saw in Memphis was perhaps not real. Um she was shocked by the lynching itself. Uh, she had previously only read about lynchings There hadn't been that kind of racial violence in Memphis for many years, um, since long before she moved there. And she was shocked by how arbitrary it was and how obviously economically motivated it was. So she began to research lynchings, um, Using the fact using her travels to collect information in her contacts with other newspapers and found out that this 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 kind of racial violence that had nothing to do with criminality or rape, which was often the justification for lynching, was quite common um, and she found this out as she was reading white Memphis newspapers that were defending the lynching. And defending lynching in general as something that was needed to keep Blacks in check. Even mentioning rape as a reason, even though that it had nothing to do with this this lynching. So she began to write write about it. Um, and so she wrote an editorial in her paper in which she suggested that lynching had nothing to do with crime and especially nothing to do with rape. Um, and she um, she published it. She left town again to sell more papers and a white mob swept into the office of her paper, which was called, ironically, free speech, destroyed the printing press, destroyed the paper, and uh, put out a, a sort of death warrant on the editor of the paper. And she never returned to Memphis after that.
0: Yeah. And it's such a, you know, a, a sort of horrifying moment and fascinating in a lot of ways. I was, you know, interested in your, you know, here we have Ida B. Wells, who's, who's, you know, at this point, you know, she's, she's a grown up, she's pretty hard-nosed, she knows her way around, she's an entrepreneur, she's, you know, she knows what's what, but this, this shocked her. Yes. You know, this shocked even her. Right. Um. And, um. and like you say, she sort of goes off and now she's, she's going to start doing this reading about, about lynching and mm-hmm. discovers mm-hmm. this, this, this kind of world of lynching that that's i mean it was interesting it was almost a little surprising to me that mm. that that it came as a as a surprise to her and i mean does that have to do with the kind of transitional moment we're in um does it have to do with the fact that well this is she's the journalist who brings who who makes it kind of, you, know, mm. I, I, to, you know i mean in a sort of an emotional sense mm-hmm. obviously you got this sort of sense of shock of her and i have to say in you know, there there are many nice pictures in the book including this this picture that nearly made me burst into tears of Ida with um, with the widow, with Betty mm-hmm. Moss and the mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just have the sense of, again, the personal connection to all right. of this. Right. Um, but but she, she clearly was a bit of a known quantity um, to the white community. Of course, she had been publishing. She was an editor mm-hmm. of a newspaper. Um, but I... You know, I so, she, but she knows to get out of town. She publishes that editorial, and she she gets out of town.
1: Well, yeah, she and she she she, she
0: does not publish the
1: editorial under her own name, which is why mm-hmm. initially nobody knows she wrote it. Um, and she actually tries to publish it. Um, I think she tries to publish it under the name of one of her male partners, but he's not going for it. either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think she entirely knows knows to get out of town. I may mean, think she was scheduled to leave anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that may be also partially because she doesn't know how closely they're monitoring the black newspaper. Yeah. And apparently they haven't always been closely monitoring the black newspaper because when the editorial comes out, they don't know that a woman wrote it. Um, it, it doesn't occur to them that a woman wrote it. They mm. issue this threat that they're going to castrate whoever wrote it. And, mm-hmm. um <laughs> And you know that's that's just not going to be a possibility. They revise the threat when they find out that it's B Wells. They say they're going to destroy her face and hang her from the courthouse. Um, but um, so she, she, you know, so that there's they know some things. She knows some things. Um, I think she might have exaggerated the extent to which uh, she had no idea that mm. lynching was sometimes. You know that lynching was. Um so rarely motivated by rape. I don't think she knew this. She did certainly didn't know the statistics, and she also didn't know the details because when she really began to look into the lynchings, even when rape was alleged, she found out that these lynchings usually took place when an interracial relationship was discovered um, and that when she would go to these towns and ask about it, they'd say, oh, yeah, those two, you know, those two had been having an affair, um and people found out about it so she came to understand that um that it was much worse any anything it was much worse than anything she might have thought um not only was not only were many lynchings completely unassociated with allegations of rape but when there were allegations of rape those allegations were almost always false um i think you know, as for everyone, when it's, when it's her own, the people she knows, Thomas Moss, who was a mail carrier as well as a business owner, this man, and a, you know, a Sunday school teacher, universally well-liked. When you're, when you're reading about lynchings in far-off places, you can imagine maybe this person, you know, did something, but, It was very shocking to her to see these pillars of the community who had never done anything to anybody be treated, you know, be demonized and murdered with with no recourse. Um, That was a tremendous, tremendous shock, um, which literally sort of had her reconfiguring her life prior to the lynching she was she was a southern girl she was picturing spending her entire life in the south probably in memphis working to advance the race engaging in local politics being a newspaper owner and the lynching made her realize that you couldn't stay in the south that you could nothing that you would ever achieve there could be secure i mean and and I mean, it made her realize it in a very visceral way. Her paper was destroyed, um, but it was—it was also a revelation.
0: Yeah. So she moves to New York at this point and she's writing, you know, I mean, the stuff she's writing is just so dangerous, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. You know, it's not just, Hey, you know, this isn't about rape, but Mm -hmm. then when she starts writing about voluntary consensual relationships between white women and black men, she's, you know, dragging white women through the mud. I mean, this is just really dangerous stuff to be publishing. Mm -hmm, Um, so, so, does New York offer a haven? I mean, this, like you say, this is a, she's now in a very different world. There's a whole different level of African American elite in New York, a whole, you know, we're now we're on the national and international stage.
1: Yeah. And, and New York does offer a haven for her. She has all these contacts through her years of writing articles, getting them placed. Um, she's been published in the New York page for years, articles by her, um, reprints. So Thomas Fortune, who's the editor of the New York Age, which is really the biggest, most important African-American newspaper at that point, is quick to offer her a job um, and encourage her to settle in New York, to write for the Age, to write about events in Memphis, which she takes him up on. Um, You know, she sort of arrives there having never, you know, even had a chance to pick up her things and still not initially knowing what's going on, but she's getting these messages from people in Memphis saying, do not come back. You will, you know, they are planning to kill you. Um, things are still terrible. So she resettles there. Um, and she is, as is characteristic of her, you know, sort of mad as hell and determined to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so she's not just fleeing. She, no. she says she moves to New York and, you know, her big commitment is to tell the truth freely to, you know, to basically get out of the South and um, go to a place where she can speak about events there and, and do so. And she can, because New York is in the South. There's still enough regional divisions that, um, um, you know, she can critique the South. She can say all these things without um, being subject to violence. She, Is not necessary. She has trouble getting a a white audience for these things, but she is able to speak out, and she's able to find a lot of support and sympathy among um, the the large middle class black community in Manhattan and Brooklyn, who welcome her, who invite her to speak, who read her articles, um, and who take her very seriously.
0: It's a kind of an interesting transition because, you know, not only is she a Southern girl moving to the North, um, but she's, you know, she's also, she's from a different social class mm-hmm. than a lot of these people. You know, she's got basically a sort of a, you know, maybe middle school education. Mm-hmm. And she's now circulating in a world of people with, you know, with university degrees or people who are children of, you know, very successful uh, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, in that world for her.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways she is such a country wo- country girl, and she comes from a world in which, you know, there the there's a limited, a much smaller, like born free before the end of slavery black elite. So um, she's kind of awed by these people, um, but also kind of unfamiliar unfamiliar with this black elite, and yet at the same time she's someone who. Um, She has a lot of self-confidence. She has, even though she comes from these rural, countrified roots, she has sort of remade herself into a fairly sophisticated young lady. She's, um, as I said, a very attractive woman who loves to dress well and so forth. She presents very well. She speaks very well. So she's sort of embraced by this elite, um, at least initially. Um, They, want to hear all about her experiences. Um, They have a lot of respect for her work and her ambitions. um, And she feels very much rescued by them um, when they sort of band together and support her and um, um, invite her to talk about what happened. And, and um, ultimately will form the, they will form women's clubs sort of around (sighs) around these issues. So uh, it's a, it's a very exciting time for her, except that she will ultimately feel as even as she does this, that she's not making enough of an impact, um, that she's not able to change things about lynching, um, which will lead her to ultimately travel to Britain and, and talk to people there about lynching and try to get sort of the world's attention about it. She wants something to be done about lynching. She wants, Legislation. Um, she wants it to end, basically.
0: And the British episode is is interesting because you know, unlike in you know, with abolition, where Britain, for good reason, had its own abolition movement, right. and you end up with this kind of transatlantic mm-hmm. collaboration among abolitionists. Britain doesn't really have lynching, but they do have anti lynching white activists, and she kind of they they embrace her. They embrace, and that you know becomes a very important venue for her to then. Become of interest to white Americans because right. if she's interesting in Britain, then maybe she's interesting to us. You know, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I, I the the British anti lynching movement was new to me, mm-hmm. um, and you know, in some ways, it seems like this sort of hardy band of maybe very small band um, of activists. But what what's motivating them? And um,
1: well, Wells—I mean, Wells—kind of really gets them going. I mean, there's a couple of people in Britain that hear about lynching, and they are—they um, are. One of them is a woman named Catherine MP, who is uh, publishes a journal called Anti-Anti-Caste, which is against um, sort of racial prejudice, um, and focused actually on on India um other places not just the u s but um she's a quaker and um she has she has um family origins in the anti slavery movement and that is one reason why the why especially as ida b wells presents it anti lynching ha- resonates with the british the the british became the british were very had a very energetic anti slavery movement um and which involved a certain level of commitment to racial justice. Um, and Ida B. Wells's essential argument was that lynching was a sign that slavery really hadn't ended. Lynching was a practice used to basically all but re-enslave blacks. And that argument resonated with the British um, having fought this anti-slavery battle and being very proud of their achievements there. Um, they were open to the idea that um, they should actually – Insert themselves in things again if 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 lynching was a sign that slavery was really in some ways continuing. So people like Catherine M.P. responded very much on that level, um, and and they responded basically to the the facts that Ida B. Wells lay out. So she she travels over to Britain on the invitation of Catherine M.P. and this other Scottish um, reformer. And she gives talks, and she attracts a uh, large audiences many people um with some connections usually i mean this, this is many years later, so usually by way of dissent in certain ways with the anti slavery mm-hmm. movement
0: yeah
1: and um they get they they are willing to make um resolutions against lynching and ultimately form an anti-lynching society it takes her two trips to get this all going um but it goes quite high when she gets it going the anti-lynching society has um you know british aristocrats on it they write um they write letters of inquiry to um State governors and places where lynchings take place, they sort of, they begin to watchdog and they also denounce lynching and denounce Americans for not taking action against it, which is of tremendous interest to white newspapers because it makes them furious. I mean, it makes Americans furious that the British... They call them busybodies, and they tell them to like worry about their own bad stuff that they're doing abroad, which is actually
0: <laughs> ample. <laughs> ample, yeah. Um, but, right. but it, it creates this sort of yeah war. But yeah, it's our domestic affair, basically, yeah. Yeah. kind of. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so where's the the American black press? You know, is 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 not in a sense a threat, right, to no, white they America? Can, they can be ignored. I mean, they can know, be ignored. It's yeah. Like when the London
1: Times is publishing letters about what goes on in America,
0: and then they've got to start taking it seriously. they got to start. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, And I think it's you know it's it's probably important to to say here that that of course at this by this time Ida B. Wells is not just publishing, but she's also really become a public speaker. Right, and she's a so very she's speaking all over the place. And she's
1: a very good speaker, and she's. She's compelling. She's attractive. She's charming. So that is actually part of her success. She attracts a lot of people to come hear her talk. And then yeah. and then she talks, and it's just very, you know, these stories are very moving. When she talks about the Moss lynching, for instance, which she often talks about, You know, she lays out the facts, but she also tells these personal stories about Moss's little infant daughter who doesn't have the words to say how much she misses her father, but hugs the legs of his postal carrier's uniform and, like, you know, looks for him. And, you know, like, I'm sure there isn't a dry eye in the house when she talks about this stuff
0: yeah yeah no and i think that you know one gets right gets a sense of her her going on these speaking tours and you know the, the power of <laughs> the power of her ability to tell stories and and of course the personal attention they, this is someone from the south it's not someone from the north and right. she's maybe able to sort of able to convey it in 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 the way that maybe she didn't have before the memphis episode right she'd heard about lynching mean, right but maybe those were people who you know Maybe they had done something, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean that but that's the terrible power of these yeah. stories about Lynching is that, you know, unless you actually knew the person, you know, you never knew you never what they did. had
0: done. Right. So here she is, in a sense, you know, she's the person to to bear witness mm-hmm. to uh to her own experience. Mm-hmm. So so she has these two tours in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um that, you know, and the, then the whole British movement sort of, oh, falls apart for very interesting reasons. Right. I don't know if you want to tell that story. But that story, of course, is very telling. Right. Right about the limitations right. of, of, of some of the white sympathizers.
1: Yeah. No, the, I mean, her first British tour is simply cut short when the, t- the two female, two women reformers that support her have a huge falling out. Um, and that is because. Catherine Impey, this woman of the anti-racist magazine, um, she falls in love with a a South Asian man that they've been working with and actually writes a letter to him declaring her love, which horrifies the other white British reformer. Um, She just considers, you know, the idea of this... um, Impy's interest in this dark skinned man to be disgusting and odious. And I think she's a nymphomaniac and, and will, you know, she just never is willing to work with her again. She, um, she will not in the end work with Ida B. Wells again because Ida B. Wells refuses to denounce Impy for, you know, writing this letter. There is actually never any relationship between Impy and this man, but, um, you know you see there that there's you know there's a limit to British enlightenment when it comes to race um and gender and so yeah. forth and um it's very disappointing for Ida B. Wells, who basically thinks this is a personal matter it
0: you know, <laughs> yeah it shouldn't ruin the whole movement
1: <laughs> yeah you know, i mean I, Ida b wells um you know throughout her life is just kind of like men and women will have relationships you know. <laughs> Or attraction or so forth. And she's not very judgmental about these things. And so she's tremendously disappointed by that. Um, And disappointed by the way it reverberates for her work. She has to basically rebuild an entirely new network of contacts on her second tour.
0: So she um you know she she does this work in Britain. Mm-hmm. It's sort of of indirect importance because suddenly white America is listening. <laughs> right. And then she comes back, you know of course the rest of the, her her career really is in the United States. Right. Um and now she's coming back to a world where people where where white people are listening. Mm-hmm. More. Um and and she also enters this new phase of her life. Mm-hmm. You know, she she gets to know her husband mm-hmm. to be, um, who's who's a Chicagoan. She's you know now circulating. Um, you know, one thing I found interesting about sort of what happens from, you know, it, across this book is kind of the intersections of her career with kind of the the men who cons- constitute the unofficial leadership mm-hmm. of African-America, you know, mm-hmm. from Frederick you know, Douglass to the Booker to Washington era to W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of entangled in, in all of this. Um, but, you know, I wonder if you can... Tell us a little bit about what's happening now. She's you know, she's especially once she starts to get into the Chicago scene. Mm-hmm. Um and she finally does marry mm-hmm. and has and has children. Mm-hmm. You know, at the moment where um where her her movement is really coming to mm-hmm. to the attention of white America. There's a lot of things are happening at once.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she I mean she comes to she comes She ends up in Chicago by way of the Chicago World's Fair, where she goes in between her two British tours. And she goes to the Chicago World's Fair because she's been basically working with Frederick Douglass, who she meets through her anti-lynching work. He writes to her. He finds her work revelatory. Um, He appreciates the way that she's been able to kind of make a political cause out of this, as well as expose the truth about lynching. He says that he really did not know the truth about lynching. So he becomes an admirer and they decide that they um, want to use the Chicago World's Fair as a vehicle to speak to the world. The World's Fair has attracted visitors from all over the world. <coughs> and continuing this line of speaking to an international audience, Ida B. Wells thought it would be an ideal place for African-Americans to out a pamphlet um, basically speaking about what was going on among blacks and also speaking in particular about the fact that blacks weren't really represented at the fair and that um, this was sort of part of a general of the many ways in which blacks were oppressed and silent. So she and Douglas and some other people produce a a pamphlet called The Reason Why African Americans Are Not included in the World's Fair that contains chapters on lynching and panage and racial discrimination and um, all the sort of the concerns uh, which they pass out at the fair. One of the men she works with is is her husband-to-be, Ferdinand Barnett, who's a lawyer and a newspaper owner in Chicago. And they apparently hit it off. She does not Say a lot about it at any point in her autobiography or any of her writings um, but um, they seem to have formed an attachment fairly quickly He was um he was they shared very similar political views he never seems to have been the least bit intimidated by her you know they met when she's sort of famous off this european tour and um Um, he was immediately drawn to her. He was a widower, somewhat old, about 10 years older than her. Um, and, um, he had taken a long time to remarry by the standards of the day. His wife had been dead for many years and he had actually told people that when he married, he wanted a serious woman who, you know, who could share in his work and his commitments. And when he met Ida B. Wells, he seemed to have known immediately that she was that woman
0: it's a very interesting marriage right i mean you know, from from the hyphenated name that right. she takes, which yes. was just extraordinary at the mm-hmm. time, but to the fact that they you know they're, they're, at least from what we know there doesn 't seem to have been a struggle about the fact that she was going to be doing her work um that in fact that was kind of part of the attraction that was part of the attraction. That, like you say she's a serious woman, and yeah. that's what he that's, that's the relationship he wanted
1: yeah no he actually i mean he you know he he um he turned over his newspaper, the Chicago Conservator, over to her when they got married. Um, you know, for her to run, and um, you know, because he was also a lawyer. Uh, so they they really had these interests in common. And he was he was um, people kind of jokingly sometimes called him Mrs. Ida B. Wells. Um, he didn't seem to care. Um, they. It's by all by all accounts their marriage was a very happy one. Um, Ida B. Wells hyphenated rather than taking his name because she was, you know, she already had a professional name of great. Uh, she was really the most famous black woman in America at that point, so she's not going to subsume herself to her husband. But he makes no attempt to uh, have her stop working. She actually does think that when she has her first child, she thinks she probably should stop working. She feels that, um, you know, it probably would be best if she spent the early years of her child, her, of her child's life at home, but she gets important invitations. And within six months, she's <laughs> traveling with a nursing baby and Ferdinand pays for her to have a wet, have, you know, a nurse to travel with her, to help her. So, he obviously does not stand in her way of, sort of being who she is.
0: Yeah, yeah. So she's got this child, but she has another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know what what you describe here is eventually a kind of an adaptation of her life as an activist, not a cessation. Right. But in but indeed an adaptation, especially once a second child comes. Mm-hmm. It's you know it, it's it's hard to carry on once you've got more more than one child. This right. Kind of traveling life. <laughs> um. But what you describe is, you know, is a, a kind of a shift of attentions mm-hmm. to the more local level. And, you know, urban reform in Chicago um, matters. Right. Um, so, you know, while while she may seem to sort of fall off the national and international mm-hmm. stage, she hasn't stopped working. She's she's now in a different choosing a different environment, but another environment where there's work to be done.
1: Yeah. You, you, she she you know, she 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 starts traveling less widely. And there are many reasons for that other than the children. She Mm -hmm. can't really travel in the South because she actually, they renew the death death threat periodically.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: So she, you know, she can't really travel widely in the South. Um, And at the same time, she's community oriented. So once she settles in Chicago, she starts looking around here and seeing a lot of, battles to be fought in Chicago and also in Illinois. There's a move at one point to uh, segregate Chicago schools, which she uh, successfully fights against. Um, there are um, epi- there are race riots in Illinois. There are um, increasing numbers of uh, black men in jail in Illinois um, as you get into the 20th century and you begin to have blacks migrating north. Um, there are no social services for them in Chicago and they're um you know, they often end up in the worst part of town and often get into trouble and so she gets involved in helping people out in that. And in the meantime, she still has her eye very much on the national scene, but she's also in a changing universe of male and female leadership. When she's coming up in the eighteen nineties, people are actually thinking about her as an heir to Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Like her. Is an ex-slave with no formal education, and you know he—he, he, you know, this is not no barrier to leadership in the 19th century when, um, you know, it's—it's it's, many people are like that, and there's not a lot of blacks with great formal education. But by the 20th century, you have people like Du Bois who has a PhD from Harvard, and in between that, you have Booker T. Washington who was essentially anointed by white America to lead. And he's, he's anointed after the death of Booker T. Washington. And he is anointed because he's saying the right things, which is after, after, after Ida B. Wells. I'm sorry. After the death, he's anointed right after the death of Frederick, Doug-
0: Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and he, you know, he's anointed at a point when, um, you know, Ida B. Wells is at the height of her lynching career and people do not want to hear what she has to say. And Washington, you know, never. Uh, while he has sort of covert politics in which he does oppose lynching and segregation, he doesn't. He's not. A, he's not an activist. He he uh, he paints a good picture of things, and he's the one that they turn. He's the one that the white press turns to to be the commentator on all things African American.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, um, there's he's just a very different, per- you know, she, she is a radical, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and he is not a radical. Right. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, so on the one hand we have sort of your know, white America in a mm-hmm. sense sort of saying, Hey, these, this, this is the guy we want to be listening to. <laughs> yeah. Maybe telling us a little more what we want to hear. Right. Um, but also tensions, you know, within the black community about, right. You know, about, you know, whether, whether whether he whether Washington is going to pay attention to Wells or, you know, how how the the sort of black leadership itself negotiates mm-hmm. that change and um, it's it's a hard time for her. It's a hard time uh, for
1: her. It's a hard time I think for a lot of people in the black community because Washington initially, Booker could he Washington, Ida B. Wells, W. E. B. Du Bois, a lot of black leaders think he's fine. His big message is that. Blacks should work hard, earn money, kind of buy their self-respect by being prosperous. And, you know, these are all people who kind of believe in these values of, you know, self-reliance and so forth. So nobody has a problem with that. Um, It's only when he begins to really kind of indicate that he's willing to trade off um, you know, trade off rights for the the, you know, for these things that he's willing to say that Um, blacks and whites can be forever, you know, as separate as the fingers of the hand and that blacks do not need the franchise at this point. They just need to concentrate on working and earning money. Um, Wells, in particular, just she knows that's wrong. People like Thomas Moss, her friend who was lynched, did exactly what Washington said And they actually got punished for it. You know, he was a guy who was working two jobs, really trying to make something of himself. And that was a problem. So she didn't think his program worked. Um, So she would eventually, um, you know, begin to be a critic of his. Um, And she was also furious with him because Washington largely ignored racial violence. He just kind of acted like it didn't happen. And when forced to say something about it, He would always have to kind of say something about, of course, anyone who raped someone, you know, you could do whatever you wanted to them. So he would, in a sense, reinforce the rape myth. Um, So that, I mean, that above all was why she broke with him. But other major black leaders such as W.B. Du Bois also broke with him over this over the issue of the franchise and um, accommodation to segregation, which they was not going to get African-Americans anywhere in the long run, Mm -hmm. rightly so, as it turns out. But,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, but he had his supporters among whites. He had his supporters among blacks. He became incredibly powerful because he had enormous amounts of white patronage. Part of his message was um, that, you know, there should be industrial education. Blacks should be, you know, educated to form this sort of worker class um, on a lot of white philanthropists' Love this idea. So they poured money into the Tuskegee Institute and other black schools that basically followed the Washington model. Um, And and he had and he also got the support of the Republican Party. So he controlled enormous amounts of patronage and philanthropy money. So that won him friends among a lot of African Americans as well as whites. Um, And it meant that African Americans who wanted to get out another message really had trouble. Washington actually controlled a lot of black newspapers, um, so um, he had enormous power, and um, he could kind of elevate people or silence them to some extent.
0: Right. So it, you know, it's sort of help us to understand the context in mm-hmm. which she's starting to shift her attention, right. um, into, into, you know, into, into what is now her new community, right. um, where again, there's stuff going on, you know, this is, this is the great migration and, you know, mm-hmm. and there's violence. And so there's, there's plenty of work for her to do. Um, she dies in her sixties mm-hmm. and, um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about her legacy between then and the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you know, she, um, you know, already by the end of her, she was almost one of these people who sort of was forgotten even before she died. Her her era seems to be over. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a granddaughter, I think, who held on to a lot of her materials. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there there is the sort of you know several decades of where where she's not really part of um, of, of public memory, and then and then she reappears. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, she she you know she disappears from public memory as a sort of new generation of highly educated blacks like W. B. Du Bois emerge. Um, she is one of the founding members of the NAACP, but she does not end up working with that organization very, very very long wells because of her quick temper and her sort of uncompromising political beliefs does not end up working very well with very many people so that's one of the ways in which she kind of disappears the NWACP goes on to adopt a lot of her anti lynching agenda and rhetoric including this idea that you know you kind of go after lynching as the tip of the iceberg of white supremacy you know you just it's like that it's an that it 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 is it is a sort of key issue to attack um but she you know they they not only um don't really involve her but they almost sort of don't give her credit for um her importance to the anti-lynching movement um the fact that she becomes a wife and mother and has four kids i think also helps her kind of be sort of written out the idea that there's going to be this sort of mate you know this matrony little woman with you know uh, babies trailing her (laughs) being someone who had anything to say about anything is, is just not typical in the early 20th century um so she just increasingly becomes the kind of person that is not necessarily taken seriously as a leader on the national scale but locally she's she you know she's able to fight for a lot of things with great determination and there she and her husband are able to work together Barnett's not only a lawyer but he's the kind of lawyer that you know anyone in trouble comes to. So people show up at their house for dinner, which Ferdinand always cooks, by the way, he, he does all the cooking. in the family.
0: <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> and,
1: and, you know, they, they, they alert the Barnets when something's going on and the Barnett's mm-hmm. do something about it. Um, so she crusades against um, racial and against lynching in Illinois and, um, and successfully gets the um, governor there to actually fire a sheriff who tolerates a lynching in Cairo. And after that, there are no more lynchings in Illinois. I mean, she, you know, the idea is if you make it, if you make, if you make it consequences for people who let it happen, maybe it won't happen. And certainly that, that was something she felt proud of being able to do. Um, she, Chris, she crusades, um, the, when there's this terrible riot in, in St. Louis. So in, within her environments of the larger Midwest, she continues to be a political activist. She's also active in politics. Women get the vote in Illinois state politics fairly early, and she organizes them to support a black candidate and continues to be active in politics throughout her years there, she ultimately uh, makes an unsuccessful Senate run towards the end of her life. So she's, I mean, activism and political commitments are sort of as natural to her as breathing. But after the kids, she just doesn't move as far away. Yet. You know, her, most of her trips are fairly local.
0: Does she, does she end up being remembered locally? She um, does. She's remembered a yeah, yeah. while
1: locally. I mean, if you look at the Illinois papers, um, you know, her death is the cause of tremendous um, mm. tremendous um, uh, outpouring of articles, and she's remembered in them from time to time. Uh, there's an Ida B. Wells housing project that's set up. But I think by the time you get to the um, 50s or 60s, maybe the housing project is better known than Ida B. Wells. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, she falls out of view. She's uh, mm-hmm. the, the sort of Booker T. Washington, Du Bois, Debate is remembered as mm-hmm. a big turning point in black leadership. people don 't remember in the in the very magazine in which Du Bois first comes out against washington there 's an article with Wells coming out against Washington you know because at that point it matters what she thinks as well, but that 's the part that gets forgotten and um, you know, Part of it is in the 20th century, especially as the professional class becomes more important to all kinds of leadership, um, especially black leadership, the idea of a female who is a political leader becomes more alien for a long time. Mm. And um, she might have been forgotten altogether, but for her daughter, Alfreda Duster, who has her papers and has her unfinished autobiography and crusades tirelessly to get it published... Um, not succeeding until 1970, and she's quite an old woman.
0: So she, so of course, I don't, you know, she. This is a person who wrote a lot. She was a journalist, mm-hmm. um, but she also drafted. Or she had, she had an unfinished autobiography. Mm-hmm. She kept diaries, um, which survive, um, kind of a historian's dream right. to have those kinds of materials. When you were doing this work, um, what surprised you? Know, what,
1: what, what surprised you? Um. Well, I first a lot of Wells's papers did burn up in a house fire. So she is Oh, that's yeah, sad. So well, I mean, so so as as much as she we only have anything because she wrote as much as she did, but we didn't yeah, as much yeah. as we'd like. But um um I was surprised by as a 19th century historian, I was surprised by the way in which the Civil War and Reconstruction was a turning point in the lives of people who grew up well after both had occurred kind of the way the 1960s is
0: today. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like
1: you could be born in like 1961 and like never really experienced the sixties as an adult, but we still kind of understand the sixties as a turning point, mm-hmm. because, you know, it makes sense. People did back then said, so, but they, you know, the ways in which people look backwards. Um, Well's, she kind of amazes me as a person. I mean, I knew that all along, but it was never breached just how, um, I mean, she's just a very unusual person in the way that she sort of never gives up and is sort of like unendingly sort of principled and activist in her inclinations and, and, um, really admirable. And part of the challenge of writing the biography is sort of to try to figure out why that is so, um, and I, you know, I think a lot of it is actually um, her religious commitments um, to a kind of very uh, social justice-oriented humanity. In the end of her autobiography, she um, describes herself as the watcher on the wall, um, who you know guards guards Jerusalem and never sleeps. You know, and this is her idea that you have to be eternally vigilant you know, to protect liberty, um, which is obviously very true in her own life. But um, it's it's a commitment that she makes and really keeps,
0: you know, and I was I was going to ask. I I was embarrassed to ask kind of a cliched question, um, but, you know, what we should draw from this story for American history more broadly Um, And I don't know whether you just answered that question about, you know, sort of the sort of sense of mission and and being vigilant or. um, I mean, I think, you know, living out the best
1: of your beliefs, I think, which, you know, so few people do. But maybe we can aspire to do is, you know, not just having them, but doing things about them.
0: It's such an interesting story. And I was I was. Thrilled to read the book. It really, it's it reads wonderfully. Like I say, it's um, also it's heavily illustrated, both with photographs and and historical sketches. It's just a really terrific read. Um, I'd like to just l- make sure our listeners know what you're working on now. What can we look forward to? Yeah, well, I've recently
1: completed a forthcoming textbook on African American history with co-authors Deborah Gray White and Waldo Martin. It's called. Um, freedom on my mind, and I'm working on two books. One is uh, um, The Study of African American Ideas about Thomas Jefferson. Mm, and the other is A Social History of Segregated Transportation that was inspired when I read about Wells's train cases. It'll look at how segregation emerged and was defeated on various forms of transportation and how it shaped the, you know, shaped the lives and politics of the African-Americans who traveled in those various colored cars and backs of buses and you know, had to figure out where they could sit, where they couldn't sit, what they could do, where they could go, where they couldn't go.
0: What an iconic topic. That's wonderful. Yeah. This is this other, I really look forward to reading it. This sounds just wonderful. Okay, well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for you. spending this time with us. Um, we've had Mia Bay, author of To Tell the Truth Freely, The Life of Ida B. Wells. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. We've been speaking with Mia Bay, author of To Tell the Truth Freely The Life of Ida B. Wells, which came out with Hill and Wang in 2009. I'm Lisa Heineman, co host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Thanks for joining us today.